Hello everyone and welcome to the Unanswered Questions True Crime Podcast. I have spent hours and hours investigating this. He basically told her that people have been killed. Journalists, independent investigators, people like that disappeared. It frightened her to the bone. There's more to the story than meets the eye. There were rumors of torture and homicide and sexual abuse, all sorts of egregious, horrendous crimes. He was polygraphed three times. Each of those three showed evasions. His resumes were a skeleton of truth. He was mad at the world, and particularly mad at the government. The study that he commissioned that described a fictional terrorist attack. If people have died over this, it means you're getting close to the truth. You don't have to be a conspiracy theorist to say, what the fuck? Now we come to 1984. 20th of January, 1984. 57-year-old trucking company owner Edward Bill Kavanagh and his partner, 21-year-old Carmelita Lee, were shot dead in the bedroom of their home in Hoxton Park. Kavanagh was reported to be an associate of Robert Tromboli and other members of the Honoured Society and was alleged to have been using his business as a front for the marijuana trade between Sydney and Melbourne. Prior to his murder, Kavanagh allegedly assaulted an associate of hitman Lindsay Rose and he was murdered in retribution. Carmelita Lee's murder only occurred to eliminate a possible witness. Rose was convicted of the Kavanagh and Lee murders on the 3rd of September 1998, along with the further three murders that Rose committed in the years following, including massage parlour owner Kerry Pang and Pang's employee Fatima Ozanol at Pang's massage parlour in Gladesville on the 14th of February 1994. Pang's partner was an associate of Rose named Mark Lewis, who was also allegedly assaulted by Kavanagh some years prior to his murder. One of Kavanagh's sons, convicted armed robber and former painter and docker William Kavanagh, who was released to attend Kavanagh and Lee's funerals, and allegedly issued a threat to the media that he would shoot the killer or killers responsible for his father and Lee's murders. His first victim was Bill Kavanagh. Why did Rose target him? So Bill Kavanagh, it is alleged, arranged for a friend of Lindsay's to be beaten up. That was a fellow who worked at Bill's trucking business and was quite severely injured in, in the beating and that affected his ability to earn income as well. And Lindsay had um, felt justified in enacting revenge on Bill Kavanagh, who, by other accounts, had uh, not behaved very well towards other people in his life as well. Just to be clear, it wasn't sort of personal revenge. This this guy, Bill Kavanagh, hadn't hurt Lindsay Rose himself in any way. It was more like kind of an act of, I don't know, vigilante justice for somebody else. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, there was a moment where... So Lindsay had met Bill in connection with a truck repossession and Bill was apparently rude to Lindsay on one occasion, but I'd, so which probably just solidified his opinion of the man. But, yeah, it was primarily enacting revenge on behalf of his friend. And was it something that he kind of stewed on over a, a period of time or how, how quickly after this had happened to his friend that he decided to take vengeance? Yeah, no-one could establish exactly when this beating took place or alleged beating, because the fellow at issue later denied it altogether, but it was several years later. Right, now, that's Lin- interesting too, isn't it? It's not like something that happened in the heat of a moment or when a friend comes and tells him. It's something that, that Lindsay Rose had gone away and yeah, worked himself up to. Yeah, he had. I mean, he, I think it was also a case that he was... He was busy. He was he was living interstate for a while in that. In, well, it's on his to do list, but it not was at the top. Probably on the back of his to do list. So, so what did he plan? What did he? Um, how did he follow through on this? 
Yeah, well, unfortunately for his victims, he's had a quite a lot of trade crash from his time as a private investigator. So he knew how to do surveillance. He was familiar with weapons from his work in the security part of the private investigation business. So, so he set up a surveillance routine and got to know Bill Kavanagh's movements and where he lived and what his routines were. So it was really carefully it was planned, planned out. Yes, it was planned out and... And so on the nominated night, he arranged for a, a friend of his to come with him without telling that friend what he had planned. He told the friend it was an intended robbery and the two of them went round to, to Bill Kavanagh's house to, to wait for him to come home. And unfortunately, Bill Kavanagh's young girlfriend was home at the time. So they tied her up and waited for, for Bill to come home. And when Bill walked in the door, Lindsay shot him. And then he went and shot the young girl as well because she recognised him and he didn't wish to have a witness. So straight away he um, he murders the person that he'd intended to and then just a completely innocent bystander. Yeah, so on, at one level he's he's regrets that the witness died. It was not his intention to kill another person at that time. So I, I've kind of tried to tease out of him, So what, but why go through it? And he said, well... I decided that this was going to happen to Bill and I was going to follow it through no matter what and it was just unfortunate for her that she was there. Did the friend who um, who Lindsay Rose said had been beaten up by Bill Cavanagh, did he know that this was happening? Like, did Lindsay Rose discuss it with him? Or? No. No, it, it was... He found out afterwards, but no, he was not involved in the commission of that enterprise at all. Just it's it's uh, you know obviously this is something that you've spent time trying to tease out, um, Campbell. But it just it it seems such a kind of incomprehensible or inexplicable kind of murder. This this person who doesn't even wrong you has wronged someone else. That other person hasn't asked you to murder them. You just take it on yourself that you're you're going to do this thing, and you you spend a long time planning it and and then act it out. I suppose the other, I mean his justification for it was in his mind Bill Kavanagh was just a bad person anyway so there is some evidence to suggest that Bill Kavanagh was involved in running drugs through his trucking business for the Calabria Mafia and Lindsay's view was he's harming people's lives and he will do so in the future and he thought he would be doing the world a favour. So he sort of set himself up as um, judge and jury and executioner then in that state. Where did he go after he'd murdered these two people? Did he go into hiding? No, no, he went home. He went home to his wife and daughter. Did and they have any idea? No. No, they they found out, I believe, the same time that I did when he was um, he was on the news. So, And he didn't leave any forensic evidence that could connect him with it and he was not even a suspect. He was not on the police radar at all in relation to that matter. He was, he was away scot-free. 2nd of April 1984. 38-year-old racehorse trainer George Brown was bashed to death and set alight in his car at the top of Bully Pass. On the night of his murder, Brown was last seen driving from his work at the stable at Rosebury to his home in Kensington. Police believe Brown was murdered by members of a horse racing ring-in scam. Prior to his murder, one of Brown's horses came second last at a race meeting in Brisbane on the 31st of March 1984. It is alleged that Brown's murder was linked to the fine cotton ring-in. Again, another case I'll cover in a podcast episode later on.
6th of June 1984, 31-year-old New South Wales drug squad detective Michael McDrury was shot twice through the kitchen window of his family home at Chatswood. It was alleged that the shooter was hitman Chris Flannery, hired by Flannery's associate Melbourne drug dealer and former painter and docker Alan Williams. On the 4th of March 1982, Drury was in Melbourne as part of a joint New South Wales-Victoria police operation into a Sydney drug syndicate run by boss Robert Jumping Jack Richardson and local distributor Brian Hansen. Alan Williams was identified by Detective Sergeant Drury as a supplier to Richardson and Hanson. The arrest of Williams went wrong when one of the arrest team's unmarked patrol car went to block in Williams' car and overshot, allowing Alan Williams to escape. After a short car chase that ended on the grounds of the Melbourne University, Williams took off on foot through the grounds and disappeared into the night. He was later arrested by detectives in Adelaide four months later in July of 1982. It's alleged that an associate of Williams and Flannery, New South Wales Detective Sergeant Roger Rogerson, tried to pay Drury $30,000 to have the charges against William dismissed, but Drury refused to accept the money. Despite losing two litres of blood from his wounds, Drury survived his injuries. In 1989, Williams and Rogerson were charged for attempting to bribe Drury in conspiracy to kill Drury. Williams was convicted of drug trafficking in the attempted murder of Drury and sentenced to 14 years imprisonment, while Rogerson was acquitted. William and on the evening of June 6, 1980, two gunshots were fired into Michael Drury's home. This callous incident shot the city's underworld into every lounge room in the country. It was about 6.10pm and I was in the kitchen of the house. And I was feeding my two-year-old daughter and my wife was breastfeeding my nine-month-old baby in the lounge room next door. I do remember quite vividly standing up from the table and taking my daughter's bowl to the kitchen sink. It was at that time that I got shot. Instinctively, I asked my wife to ring Triple O. And then I asked my wife to take the two girls into the bedroom and lock the door. I was a highly trained police officer and that helped me greatly with my survival mechanisms in the next several minutes. I went into the lounge room and collapsed on the ground. and just waited. When uh, Michael Drury was shot in his home, that sent uh, massive shockwaves through the police department. You know, I'm a pretty lucky guy. I do recall waking up about 12 days later. I was kept in a coma for 12 days. This gangster-style shooting of a policeman was truly shocking. But to be witnessed by his wife and young children was beyond belief. The golden rule of any organised crime gang was not to ever shoot any police or anyone from the public or... You know, I mean, they were the rules you stuck by. He was working undercover in the drug squad, so that was the logical assumption that it had something to do with people that he'd stirred up during his inquiries. I knew what the shooting related to, the case that I'd worked on some years before. 
his co-accused, Richardson, was also charged with heroin trafficking. On March 4th of 1984, the day before appearing at Williams' preliminary hearing, Richardson disappeared after speaking with two men at an ice cream parlour on Fitzroy Street in St Kilda. His body was later discovered on the side of a dirt road with two gunshot wounds to the back of his head at Strath Creek near Yee on the 31st of March 1984. 8th of November, 1984. 43-year-old drug dealer Danny the Brain Chubb was shot dead outside his mother's home in Miller's Point. Chubb was an associate of Nitty Smith and was involved in several heroin and marijuana import rings and was seen at various times showing large amounts of cash in public. On the day of his murder, Chubb left the home of a friend in his green Jaguar XJ6 and drove to the Captain Cook hotel at Miller's Point where he met with Nettie Smith and Abbo Henry. After the meeting with Smith and Henry, Chubb went to the local fish and chip shop next to the hotel where he bought a package of fish and chips for his mother's lunch. After telling the owners of the shop that he would return to pay for the meal, Chubb drove to his mother's home about 300 metres from the hotel. As Chubb got out of his car and started walking towards his mother's house, two gunmen appeared with a shotgun and a pistol and shot him. It is suspected that Chubb's murders were hired by Chubb's former partners. Danny Chubb. The more we looked at Chubb, we looked at his assets, he seemed to be uh, wealthy beyond his means, which to us, as our suspicious minds, I guess, is an indication that maybe he's, he's tied up with, with uh, organised crime or drugs. Police suspicions were spot on. The pieces were beginning to fall into place. As they would soon discover, Danny Chubb was playing with the big boys of Sydney's underworld. He was the main supplier, certainly to our gang, for hash and for heroin. It was common knowledge he was getting a little bit big for his uh, boots around town and wanted to be number one boss cocky, but, you know, I used to always say to him, listen, mate, you need more than able to sell drugs to be boss cocky. Right? So it doesn't work that way, mate. On the 8th of November, 1984, Danny had just received a multi-million dollar shipment of high-grade heroin from Asia, and he wanted to cash it in. So he headed off to meet two of his best customers. Danny Chubb met with Nettie and Abbo at the Captain Cook Hotel in the Rocks. He turned up and uh, gave us a kilo of uh, heroin. Might have been two kilos. So, you know, it was worth a fair bit of money. To this day, it's still not known if any money was handed over at that meeting. On his way home, Danny popped into the fish and chip shop. And according to Abbo, he and Nettie went off for a drink. We got down to the Star Hotel, uh, which was about probably a 10-minute drive from there, uh, where we used to keep a lot of money in the safe and things of that nature, guns and... And uh, anyway... We got a call that come from a bloke who lived down around Fairmont. Like told us that uh, Danny had been shot out the front of his mother's home. Once with a small calibre handgun and once with a heavy duty shotgun that takes off part of his face and head. It was a fairly brutal murder in the middle of the day in a reasonably quiet area down Miller's Point. It was just after 11 o'clock outside this house. Michael Daniel Chubb had just returned from buying fish and chips for lunch when the killer struck. It was clearly an execution. It wasn't until later on that we actually connected it with the major players. But, you know, we were looking at it and saying it was a violent death. There's got to be a reason behind it. 
Chubb's solicitor, Bill O'Brien, told the inquest his client had not been in fear of his life and had mentioned nothing about $5 million in a Swiss bank account. The more that we went into it, uh, the more we found that it was drugs driven with this criminal triad of people trying to gain control of uh, various powerful um, money-making operations in Sydney. And naturally, we were the last one seen with him and our reputations, I guess, preceded us on the thing and, uh, you know, they blamed us. Detective Sergeant Ian Kennedy gave evidence that Daniel Chubb was shot by two men armed with a revolver and a shotgun. There was a suggestion, of course, that Danny Chubb um, was, was bringing in that much heroin that Nettie couldn't pay him all the money that owed him money, so the best way was to get rid of him. I firmly believe, through the inquiries that I made, that Nettie was behind the murder, but didn't actually pull the trigger, or triggers. Take a lot to take the test over it, mate. You know. Have we had nothing to do with it? I certainly didn't, and uh, I'm sure Ned didn't either. Now we come to 1985. 3rd of January, 1985. 72-year-old Chinese restaurant racehorse owner Stanley Wong, his wife, 69-year-old Yang Po Chin Wong, and their housekeeper, Ah Ling Wong, were found with their throats slashed at their home in Maraba. Wong was a known associate of George Freeman and was known as a prominent businessman in Sydney's Chinatown. Wong's wife and their housekeeper survived their injuries due to life-saving surgery by Dr. Victor Chang. Prior to his murder, Wong was allegedly involved in the illegal trade of morphine. On the 10th of January, 1985, a Chinese immigrant who was in Australia illegally, Wee Lam Chu, was charged with Wong's murder. In his confession, Chu stated that Wong threatened to turn him over to the authorities if he didn't sell any white powder, illegal morphine, for Wong. Chu was convicted of Wong's murder on the 28th of February 1986 and was sentenced to life imprisonment. Chu's 18-year-old accomplice was convicted of assault with intentions to commit a robbery and was sentenced to 14 years imprisonment. 27th of January 1985. Chris Flannery, his wife and children were shot at by gunmen outside their home in Torella. At the time, Flannery was working as a bodyguard for George Freeman and became involved in a feud with Barry McCann and his associate Thomas Tough Tommy Domican over the control of Freeman's territory. It was suspected that the gunmen were sent by Domican in retaliation after Flannery allegedly assaulted McCann's wife. Domican was convicted of Flannery's attempted murder in 1988 and was sentenced to 14 years imprisonment. 16th of February 1985, 41-year-old Melbourne racing identity Michael Melbourne Mick Sayers was shot dead in the driveway of his home in Bronte. It was it is suspected that Sayers' killers were sent by Barry McCann. It was alleged that a week before his murder, Sayers stole 400,000 worth of heroin from McCann. Tommy Domican and his associates Victor Vic Camilleri and Kevin Theobald were charged with Sayers' murder in 1988, but were acquitted. 3rd of April, 1985. Tommy Domican's associates, Vic Camilleri and Kevin Theobald, were shot as they were sitting in Theobald's car at Kingsgrove. At the time of the shooting, Theobald and Camilleri were driving around Kingsgrove looking for Tommy Domican. Camilleri received wounds to his neck and shoulder and spent 10 days in hospital before making a full recovery while Theobald managed to escape without any injuries. It was suspected that the shootings were committed by Chris Flannery in an act of retaliation for Sayers' murder. 
12th of April, 1985. Tommy Domican was shot outside the Kingsgrove Police Station. Prior to the shooting, Domican was being interviewed by Detective Sergeant Arnie Tiss about the shooting of Camilleri and Theobald. After the interview, Domican left the police station and went to look for a taxi when a gunman on a motorcycle appeared and shot at him. Despite a number of shots fired, Domican managed to escape unscathed. It was suspected that Cliss Flannery committed the shooting as a follow-up to Theobald and Camilleri's shooting in retaliation for Sayer's murder. It was also suspected that Detective Sergeant Tease gave the signal to the gunman that Domican was coming out of the police station, allowing the gunman to attack. 23rd of April, 1985. 42-year-old drug dealer Anthony Spaghetti Eustace was shot six times allegedly by Chris Flannery in the back outside the airport Hilton at North Arncliffe. Known to his associates as Liverpool Tony, Eustace immigrated to Australia from the United Kingdom in the mid-1970s, where he became an associate of Terry Clark and other members of the Mr. Asia Drug Syndicate. Eustace was suspected of the murders of 25-year-old model and drug courier Maria Hassan on the 24th of December, 1975, and 29-year-old drug courier Catherine Dale Payne on the 10th of May 1978. Prior to his death, Eustace became an associate of Flannery and was reported to be a hero and supplier to Nitty Smith. When Eustace was found lying beside his Mercedes-Benz, he was rushed to the hospital where he told the detectives to fuck off when they asked him who shot him before dying of his wounds five hours after being shot. 9th of May, 1985. Chris Flannery disappeared after leaving the family's apartment near the Sydney CBD. Prior to his disappearance, Flannery and his family moved into a rented apartment in the Connaught building opposite Hyde Park, down the road from the New South Wales Police CIB building following the attempt on him and his family's life. According to Nettie Smith, after the failed attempt on Domican and the murder of Tony Eustace, Flannery was seen by the Sydney underworld as a madman. Nettie Smith then stated that he, along with Rogerson and several other detectives, had a meeting with Flannery in an attempt to get Flannery to refrain from committing more retribution shootings in which he told one of the detectives, quote, you're not a protected species, you know, you're not a fucking koala bear, end quote. On the day before his disappearance, Flannery received a message from his pager telling him to ring Mercedes, George Freeman's code name. Flannery then contacted Freeman and was told to come to Freeman's home to inspect a machine gun with a silencer that Freeman bought for Flannery. On the day of his disappearance, Flannery left the apartment armed with a 38 revolver. After being unable to start his car, Flannery went back to contact Freeman that he was going to take a taxi to the meeting. After the call, Flannery left the apartment and walked onto Liverpool Street where he disappeared. According to Nettie Smith, it was believed that Flannery was picked up by a car driven by detectives and was taken to the meeting at Freeman's home where he was shot dead with a machine gun by either Lenny McPherson or hitman Stan the Man Smith and was later dumped into the sea after the killing. Now we come to the year 1986. 6th of February 1986, 31-year-old sex worker and heroin addict Sally Ann Huckstep was drowned in Busby Pond at Centennial Park. Huckstep was the former girlfriend of Warren Lanfranchi who was shot dead by Rogerson in June of 1981. A month after Lanfranchi's death, Huckstep and her father went to the New South Wales Police Internal Affairs Bureau and told detectives that after killing Lanfranchi, Rogerson stole the $10,000 that Lanfranchi brought and named several detectives involved in Lanfranchi's death. Huckstep appeared on 60 Minutes and told Martin about what happened to Lan French on the day of his death. Prior to her death, Huckstep started to write articles for a magazine company and began an affair with an Australian Federal Police Constable named Peter Smith. It was believed that on the night of her murder, Huckstep was lured to Centennial Park to meet a drug dealer where Nettie Smith was waiting in the reeds near the pond. As Huckstep was talking to the dealer, Nettie Smith jumped from the reeds and knocked Huckstep to the ground and tried to strangle her but was unsuccessful. Nettie Smith then dragged Huckstep to the pond and held her underwater until she stopped struggling and died. Nettie Smith was charged with Huckstep's murder in 1999, but was acquitted due to lack of evidence. 
6th of April 1986. Nitty Smith was hit by a car as he was leaving the Iron Duke Hotel. Prior to being run over, Nitty Smith was named as a police informer. Despite being hit twice, Nitty Smith managed to escape with minor injuries. It was believed that the driver of the car was 41-year-old ex-boxer Terry Ball, who was a known associate of Barry McCann. Ball was charged with Smith's attempted murder and released on bail on the 30th of April 1986. It was alleged that Ball's attempt on Nitty Smith was committed in retribution for Nitty Smith's associate Abo Henry shooting Ball in the head three years earlier. 1st of September 1986. 36-year-old model and drug dealer Mark Johnson disappeared after leaving the Bellevue Hotel in Paddington. Known as the Playboy Punter, Johnston previously served a prison sentence in the United Kingdom for importing marijuana. He rented, his rented car was found in Moroba on the 9th of September 1986 with 500 grams of heroin in the vehicle's boot. Johnston's skeletal remains was found at Botany Beach in October 2007. While in prison, Nettie Smith confessed to the murder of Mark Johnston. In his confession, he stated Johnston drove his rented car to the home of Nettie Smith's lawyer Graham Val Bellamy in Dover Heights, where Johnston was to collect $60,000 that Bellamy was holding. When Johnston arrived, Nettie Smith grabbed Johnston at the bequest of Bellamy, strangled Johnston to death with a garrote before taking his body to Botany Beach. Now we come to the year 1987. 6th of August 1987, 49-year-old drug dealer Barry Sugar Croft was shot dead while as he was sitting in a car at the intersection of City Road and Myrtle Street in Annandale. Croft was an associate of Barry McCann and was reported to be a major heroin supplier to George Freeman. Prior to his murder, Croft became involved in a heroin importation ring with McCann. On the night of his murder, Croft left the Cauliflower Hotel in Waterloo to meet with McCann at the Lansdowne Hotel. As Croft's vehicle came to a stop at the intersection, two gunmen on a motorcycle pulled in front of Croft and fired two shots through the windshield, killing him. It is alleged that the gunman killed Croft to remove him from the heroin importation ring so they could deal with McCann directly. 27th of December 1987. 44-year-old heroin supplier Barry McCann was shot dead at H.J. Mahoney Park in Marrickville. McCann rang the Lansdowne Hotel where his gang operated from and attempted to move in on the Sydney illegal gambling trade run by Lenny McPherson. At the time of his murder, McCann was reportedly involved in a heroin importation ring with former Marrickville councillor George Savas. Prior to his death, McCann and Savas fell out after Savas undercut McCann's normal heroin distribution price by selling the heroin in Sydney, not Melbourne, as was agreed by by McCann and Savas, in which two suitcases of heroin went missing. Savas was charged with McCann's murder in 1988 and was acquitted, but was convicted of heroin trafficking and sentenced to 25 years imprisonment. On the 7th of March 1994, Savas was sentenced to a further 18 years imprisonment for masterminding a conspiracy to import 40 kgs of heroin from South America. Barry McCann and former Marrickville councillor George Savas teamed up and worked out how to bring in $20 million worth at a time. Barry McCann was a regular visitor to Manila in the Philippines. And at that location, he would meet a Singaporean Chinese who we came to name Chinese David, who was a major heroin exporter. They would simply purchase two bags, two identical luggage pieces, and McCann would return to Sydney with the identical piece of luggage. The Singaporean man would then pack in sometimes 20, sometimes 22 kilos of high-grade heroin into the suitcase that he had. Through Savas's connections, McCann had a corrupt baggage handler working at Sydney Airport. Have a good trip, boss. McCann would take his identical piece of luggage 
to a fellow at the airport who was working uh, would then answer air freight and would allow that handler to identify and familiarise himself with that suitcase. See you later, boss. In a couple of days. Bye-bye. Chinese David in Singapore would then ring through to McCann and tell him uh, what flight the uh, luggage was going to be placed on, travelling as unaccompanied luggage. It would then come into Sydney where the then ANSET employee would extract the bag and simply walk out of the airport with it, hand it on to another person who in turn handed it to McCann. That bag of heroin alone was worth a whopping $20 million. Both Savas and McCann were expecting big profits. One bag containing 22 kilos of heroin went missing. McCann was of the view that Savas had stolen it. Savas denied it. And there were threats from McCann to Savas, and Savas, in fact, threatened McCann, both threatening each now other with death. The year 1988 and the final killing. 12th of April, 1988. 37-year-old armed robber and drug dealer Bruce Sandry disappeared after leaving the Zetland Hotel in Zetland. Prior to his murder, Sandry ran a major heroin distribution ring in South Australia and was named in the suspected murders of his associates Ron Naylor and his wife Sonia, who disappeared from a motel in Glenegg on the 29th of June 1984. At the time of his murder, Sandry arrived in Sydney from South Australia and was importing heroin into South Australia from New South Wales. Sandry's body was found buried at Botany Bay Beach in October 1988, Nettie Smith was charged with Sandry's murder in 1996, but again was acquitted. Now we get into the arrest and sentencing. Nettie Smith was charged as an accessory to the murder of tow truck driver Ron Flavel, who was stabbed in a road rage incident at Coogee on the 30th of October 1987 and was sentenced to life imprisonment in 1990. Out of eight murders that Nettie Smith was charged with previously, he had only been convicted for the murder of Harvey Jones. Smith's associate, Abbo Henry, was sentenced to six years imprisonment for the assault of a police prosecutor on the 15th of December 1988. Roger Rogerson was convicted of perverting the course of justice in 1990 after detectives found a $110,000 deposited by Rogerson in three separate bank accounts under a false name and was sentenced to three years imprisonment. The majority of these murders remains unsolved. With that, this case remains open, but with many unanswered questions, it still remain unanswered. Please rate the show and let me know what you guys think about this and the many other cases I've covered. You can follow me on all major social media platforms, YouTube, BitChute, Dailymotion. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram. Links are all down below in the description. If you have a case you'd like me to have a look at or cover, don't hesitate to send me a message. I'm your host, and this has been the Unanswered Questions podcast. Until next time, next on unanswered questions. Now, the Federated Ship Painters and Dockers Union, FSPDU, was an Australian trade union which existed between 1900 and 1993.